companies are not really acknowledging how competitive it is to hire great people and therefore they're not making the hard decisions internally to do things that will stand out amongst the crowd. Too many companies not putting salaries on their job adverts. We speak to candidates all the time and this is the number one complaint they always have. And some people even say, I will no longer apply to a job if it doesn't have a salary on the job advert. That's Sam Franklin, co-founder and CEO of Otter, a job search platform that wants to make the experience of job seekers in the tech industry way, way better. You might not think stuff like recruitment and job boards are the most exciting areas to disrupt, but I love the subject of hiring. It's so important and can be very nuanced. All businesses succeed because of their people. I am obsessed by how you hire well, and I think most great founders are too, to be honest, if you listen to what they've been saying for the last 200 episodes. At Otter, they're really leaning into the power of the job seeker. And in the fast-growing tech industry where demand for the best talent is very high, that has turned out to be a strong strategy. Sam got a taste of what it takes to build a fast-growing startup when working at the prop tech company Nested. It was at Nested, as head of people and doing over 30 hours of interviews a week, that he realised how soul-destroying the recruitment process can be for many people. That was the start of Otter. If you want to get better at recruitment, either as an employer or job hunter, then there are some gems in this episode. Sam shares his tips for hiring, including stuff I've never thought of before. Sam has always been really independent and driven, qualities you often see in founders. Growing up in a small village, he used the internet to find opportunities he couldn't get elsewhere, which evolved into his first steps into business. I'd like to think I was in the generation that had the best of the internet, where I didn't grow up with social media like Instagram. And so maybe I wasn't tainted in that way, but I grew up with the internet in a way that was great to explore. And so from you know 13 onwards, I was doing anything and everything to, to learn, to build things, to try new communities. And that was super exciting because I lived in a teeny tiny village, um, which didn't have a shop, which didn't have a post office, which had three pubs. And so being able to explore this world of of people was super exciting. I I found myself into a a game online called Neopets, which is huge and it's actually still huge. Think a world of um, having pets and you develop them and train them and play games. But I fell into the side of a group of people that wanted to effectively build programs to do better at Neopets, um, which is, you know, on the edge of cheating and and hacking. But, you know, I think it's not too bad uh, to share on a podcast. And effectively, I would make money on Neopets, which I think were called Neopoints. um, And I would sell those to people that wanted to buy Neopoints. So that was like my very, very first entrepreneurial journey. Um, And then I realized that programming skills were incredibly valuable. Um, And so I joined a forum and I actually couldn't remember the name. I looked for it in my my notes, but I've got an email where I've written off that I'm the CEO of Sam Designs. As a a 14-year-old, I proclaimed I was the CEO. And I was selling my services for like $25 an hour, which, you know, you look back now and developers would would make much, much more. Um, But when I compare that $25 an hour to my £4.85 per hour um, pay from Next, the the clothing retailer, um, it was much more. And what I was doing was selling um, my hours, whether it was for WordPress designs, whether it was tweaks, whether it was creating plugins. And I was just hacking my way through. Like I didn't know really what I was doing, but I was able to show that I was um, capable and I had great reviews on this website. I always delivered on time and responded well to, to feedback. So I did that for a few years, um, made some decent money. And then I remember it was the first time that someone asked me to build a whole website end to end. I was thinking, well, this is a bit over the top now. You know, if I'm building your website, why don't I go build my website? 
So the first website I built was, it happened about the time that I was starting to look at universities. I was 16 and I was really, really keen to learn about universities um, earlier than maybe you should have. And so I um, went to all of the top universities and their websites and I wanted to get their prospectuses. And the crazy thing back then was, you know, we're talking 14 years ago, you had to get the prospectus by post. And I got a load in the post. And actually, I remember this moment, I got three of the same copy from, from UCL. And I was thinking, this is crazy. Like, there must be a way to look at this stuff online. And it so happened that at the time, universities were just about putting PDF versions of their prospectuses. And so I built a website, super simple, which was a directory of prospectuses with PDF. Um, and I called it One Click Prospectus, and it had this massive green heart. And the green heart was to show that we were all about climate, a One Click Prospectus. Uh, Sam, Sam Designs, the CEO, really cared about it. And it got traction. It got picked up by a few schools. Uh, I shared it on the student room. And I can't remember which media agency wanted to buy it. It was a you know, small one um, in the UK. Someone said, hey, like, this looks great. We'll, we'll pay you £1,000. Who knows at the time whether that was good value or not. Potentially, I was undersold. But at the moment of getting offered a thousand pounds at 16, I was thinking, this is crazy. Yeah, I definitely should be uh, you know, selling this and making money. And so that was really my first foray into entrepreneurship. But then I remember there was a moment where I turned into an academic. I got to about 16, 17. My school teacher said, hey, you could be really, really good and go to somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge. And I think my life turned back into a, um, okay, I need to focus on, on achieving. Like I went from one moment to I'm making some money on the side. Maybe I'll go do computer science and I'll go be a hacker to suddenly someone telling me you're really sharp and capable at maths you should go think about doing maths at Cambridge um, I ended up doing economics at Cambridge but um, yeah I, I felt like it was an interesting flip-flop and you know if that teacher hadn't said something maybe I'd be in a very different path now how I guess I'm listening to the story and I'm thinking you've got this sort of intersection of like natural abilities and curiosity but then also I guess, like a lot of people with formative years, you know, not necessarily lacking confidence, but certainly looking for guidance, it sounds like. Um, I'm guessing I'm wondering, like, how much impact you think um, and how receptive you've been to having mentors and guides in your life help you find the right path? You know, I don't know if I've had many mentors until my mid-20s who I've really found clicked with me. I exclude my parents from that because I think they're the best mentors that most people can get. Um, but I didn't have anyone when I was 13 to 18 suggesting, hey, like you should go use your skills at programming or you could go do this website. I think I probably have had from a very early age this sort of fake it till you make it and as you call it, curiosity and exploration that has put me in a good position. I think it was only when I got to about 22, 23 that I was thinking about being an entrepreneur that I reached out to another entrepreneur and set of entrepreneurs and said, hey, what does it take for a young McKinsey graduate to move their career in a completely different direction to become a founder of a VC-backed business? Did I start to pick up mentors? And I don't know whether that's been a, a formative thing for me, but I do. it's interesting you ask the question because I reflect now and I'm thinking, yeah, for my, for my earlier years, there wasn't really a strong mentor. I had interesting guiding moments of teachers saying you're great and pushing me, but no one that I would say has really formed formed me until later in life. And, and you know, the person that I, I mentioned in terms of entrepreneur, like I, I worked with Matt Robinson, he's the CEO of Nested, he founded Go Cardless, and you know, he was kind enough to take me on an unpaid internship when I was 22 and still working at McKinsey. I took four weeks out um, 
most people take four weeks out to travel or learn an instrument or do something cool. I took four weeks out to go work for a startup. Um, but Matt gave me the opportunity to go work with him really closely. And, and after I left McKinsey, I, I joined Nested again as, as a chief of staff and I learned a lot from him. Uh, and he's been a massive mentor to me. But until then, I didn't have one, which is an interesting thing I've now reflected. Are you still close? We are. I don't speak, I don't speak to him as much as I probably should um, in the last six to 12 months. But when we started Otter, like we were very, very, um, very close. Uh, him giving me great advice on how to manage investment, how to manage founding dynamics, how to manage building a product. And certainly when we were at Nested, um, I would like to think we were very close. Like there were moments where I'd pick up the phone at 9 p.m. and we'd be riffing off each other, talking about the next product angle he was thinking about or or how to angle Nestor's business for our Series C. Um, and that was fantastic. Like I got so much energy working for an entrepreneur who was operating at that level. What were the biggest things you reflect on, like having learned at Nested? Like what really helped set you up for Otter? One of them was confidence. Um, I've always been quite a shy individual. Uh, I think... Working at Nesta gave me the confidence that I could translate my probably more introverted, introspective abilities into something a bit more outward. And, um, you know, you have to be outward to be an entrepreneur. You're a seller, first, first and foremost. You're selling your vision to your employees, your investors, to the world. Um, and I think working on things with Matt definitely gave me the confidence that, well, uh, you know, Matt's doing it. People, Matt's hired doing it. I can do it too. So that was one. I think probably the second area that I really learned was being really, really, really focused on product market fit. And Nested has gone through multiple waves of what product it's trying to sell, what products have worked, what products haven't. And I think it was really good to join a business like that versus a business that was an absolute home run. Um, I could have I could have joined one of the big neo banks before joining Nested, and I'm sure that would have been a great experience. I would have had more responsibility. But Nested had moments where we were really questioning, do we rip up what we've already got and try something different? Or do we try something completely new because this product market fit isn't quite right? And I think the reason why I loved this is, I think as an entrepreneur, one of the hardest things is how to find the right bar for product market fit. Often entrepreneurs and VCs say, you know product market fit when you have it, but it's really hard to know, do you have product market fit? And so working in a business that was trying to find it and having multiple iterations and multiple swings of different things almost gave me a bit of an internal bar such that when I was starting to work on my own ideas, um, which one of them eventually became Otter, I had a little bit more sense of, okay, this isn't good enough. Like this isn't going to fly. This isn't getting enough traction. And then probably thirdly with Matt, like if you meet Matt, he's someone who's got a lot of great mental models um, whether it's how to think about a great idea to start a business or whether it's how to evaluate someone at an interview. I don't think I've met anyone quite as good as him to have always a quick mental model that's memorable, that's quite directive, that's actionable. Um, one of the mental models that I found really impactful is evaluating businesses. Uh, so he had four questions that he would always recommend we ask um, myself and my two co-founders when we were exploring an idea. Um, and the first one is, why is this a burning pain? because that's what you're trying to get at. A burning pain is something where it's so painful they'll they'll try anything to solve it. Um, so the first one is, why is there a burning pain? The second one is, what are they doing to solve it today? Because if they're not trying to do something to solve it today, it's probably not that painful for them. And this question really, really tries to um, unpick the user behavior and, and hopefully shows you that they're doing some pretty, pretty hacky stuff to find a solution and therefore there's an opportunity. The third one is how are you going to meet them? How are you going to find them? How are you going to grow the business? Um, and then four, 
why are you the right people to go build this? And and these questions are not rocket science, but it's just a really healthy mental model to make sure you're covering enough of the important points um, to make sure that this is a business opportunity worth going after. Obviously, you then go explore, you iterate, you speak to users, you try MVPs. Um, but we liked those four questions because it helped us really eradicate a few ideas that probably weren't quite right for us to go build. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time on Twitter, I'm not averse to seeing a lot of tweets about this mental model or that mental model. And actually, the other day, I saw an excellent tweet, which was along the lines of, I feel like all I'm really missing is just one more mental model, and then I'll be able to start my business. And I was like, that is just tweet of the day is fantastic. Um, Because I guess at some point you get all these mental models and a lot of stuff like this just ends up becoming pure procrastination. You like try to become the smartest academic in the room about solving something. But often that can actually detract you from starting. Obviously, in your experience here, you're doing this with an entrepreneur who's helping use these as guiding questions to drive you towards a, a solution. So it's slightly different. I do have a question, though. You know, you mentioned um, searching for product market fit at Nested and you mentioned Series C. It's quite an unusual situation to be in, right, to be in search of product market fit at Series C. So, like, how did you find internally that kind of pressure and stress? Because that isn't usually a story that goes well. So... I think there's a big debate about whether product market fit is a moment or whether there are many series of moments. And Matt always used to say to me, product product market fit has many moments. And so there was the moment where they proved that they could sell their first customer. And that's what allowed them to do a series A. Then they proved that they could scale the model and that allowed them to do a series B. But then always becomes a point where you realize, okay, if we really want to scale this business, we've got some really hard problems to go solve. Um, for them, it was how do we make um, our product cheaper? They were providing um, effectively debt and therefore that debt needed to come at a cheap enough price that customers are willing to pay for it. Um, and so I don't think it's that, I would argue, unusual to have questions of product market fit um, as you grow your business. Um, because I think it's quite rare in my, from my experience speaking to entrepreneurs that the thing that got you product market fit to get your seed round, your very first you know, in- institutional money, is the same product that you go build forever and ever and that keeps you to scale. Um, but to answer your, your question about was it intense internally, um, I didn't think it ever felt too intense because Matt always had this lovely you know, vision and way of, of kind of giving people comfort that this is the right thing we're aiming for. We need to do our best work. Um, we need to challenge ourselves, work really hard, ask the hard questions. But it never felt like um, it was the kind of business was about to burn. Like we had a business, that's the thing. When you're trying to find product market fit at a later stage, like we had you know, multi-millions of revenue, which is different to when you're a business that might disappear in 12 months because you're not going to get funding and you don't have anything, anything to work on. But I think also personally, this is another mental model for you, Dan, but I think it's a good one. Um, the best mental models are the ones you remember. I've always loved this mental model, which is um, stress is internal and pressure is external. And what that means is you can be incredibly under pressure. You can be driving a helicopter that's about to crash into the ground, but you don't have to have any stress. That you know, Stress is your internal ability to control things. Um, and the reason I share this here is I don't think Matt put an incredible amount of pressure on. He put the right amount of pressure and he knew that people at Nested, whether it was leaders or me as a person working closely with him, could and should manage their their stress in the right way.
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So what was it like to leave? You know, was it like to actually leave a business that you absolutely, you know, loved has given you a lot? Like, was that difficult or were you supported? I mean, I'm looking at your facial expressions. doesn't look like it was the easiest thing. No, I actually was thinking the other way, in which case it was actually really easy. And I think it was really easy because I really wanted to start a business. Like, I was very tactical in joining Nested. I wanted to join a startup um, to, have the th- to get the three things you need to start a business. One being money, like I was saving money whilst I was there. Two being an idea. I was thinking about ideas when I was there. And then three was the team. Um, so I, um, I convinced one of my co-founders, Theo, who's been a long friend of mine, to join Nested to see what it's like to work together. And then I met our third co-founder, Zav, there. Um, so I was ready to leave. Like it was the moment that I wanted. I was super excited to start a business. Um, and so I think it was one of those moments where leaving a business on a high is actually sometimes a good thing. And I always counsel people this when I would do career coaching, which is you shouldn't feel like you need to be in the absolute zero out of 10 position in a job to leave. If you're leaving a job and you're nine out of 10 in your current job, that is not a bad thing. Don't feel bad. You've just got a better opportunity out there. And that's what I had. And um, I think the reason I was, I was smiling was because um, there was a moment I remember where Matt didn't quite realize that there were three of us who wanted to leave Nested. Um, you know, he, he thought I would want, want to start a business. He knew I wanted to start a business. But when I said to him, oh, I'm going to start something with Theo and Zav, I think that was a bit of a shock to him. Um, and it wasn't actually myself who delivered my own resignation notice, which is a bit strange. I was actually hiking in um, in, the, in the Italian mountains with Theo and our co-founder Zav had to put his resignation in because he... Um, 
had a master's and, and basically needed to leave a bit earlier than us. And so when Matt was saying to him, like, what are you doing next? He said, well, I'm starting a business with Theo and, Theo and Sam. Um, and so we hadn't quite told Matt at that stage. And so it was quite weird that I got this text from Matt saying, hey, just heard you're going to start a business. I hear you're leaving in April. You know, looking forward to hearing from you when you're back. You know, he's been really supportive. He's an angel investor in, in Otter, was one of our first um, investors. Um, and so it was very amicable. But it was, a, yeah, it was a strange moment because I'd got a lot from Nested, but it felt like it was the right time to leave. So you've had a good time at Nested. I appreciate you're getting restless, but what is it that makes you want to start Otter? Like what burning problem are you really looking to solve with a new business? So we were really deliberate when we started to think about our business that it had to hit two notes. One being your obvious, it has to have profitability in the long run. It has to be a great opportunity, a big business. And all entrepreneurs should be thinking about this. A mental model, if you will. A mental model. I'm very structured. I'm a consultant. Um, the second part was, is this going to be something we want to go build for five to 10 years? Is this a mission we're excited about? And you know, be, without being rude to other entrepreneurs, I've met a number who don't think about this enough. And they're more excited by the idea of building a business than they are about the business they end up building. And we really didn't want to be one of those entrepreneurs. Like We wanted to be a set of entrepreneurs that said, like, we love what we're doing. And so... When we were exploring ideas, we've, we spent more time on that half, which was the mission. Um, and the spark for Otter, so Otter is building the better way to find a job in tech. We help more than a million people um, so far find, uh, find great roles, find fulfillment. Um, and our angle is we're trying to build the candidate first job search, the one that's really built for job seekers. And the, 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 the first entry into the space was I was interviewing a lot of people at Nested. I was for a while, the, the head of people, I was doing 30 hours of interviews a week. And I would ask people like, how was your job search? Just as a curiosity question. And I would hear people say things like, oh, it's soul crushing. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I get treated really badly by companies. And that was like a, a bit of a Pandora's box opening because that felt just such an emotional thing that we weren't hearing with any other space we were exploring. And so what we did was to try and understand if this is a mission we love is we became career coaches for a few months. Um, so we found friends of friends of friends. I had about 10 people on my books. And this was a real fake it till you make it moment. Like I had no experience or qualification as a career coach. The only thing I'd been doing for the last probably 10 years of my life was helping friends find roles um, and helping them prep for interviews. And it was moments where you help people with either CV or resume review, a mock interview, um, you would give them some feedback on where they want to go in their lives. And when you hear someone say something like, you've changed my life and I've got that role. And if it weren't for you, I don't think I would have got it or I wouldn't have even found it. There was this, this was this moment that I think things clicked and we got hooked and said, this is a business which we would really enjoy building. Um, because even if you're helping one person at a time, you're making a massive change to people's lives. Um, and I'm a great believer when you think about impact and when you reflect on your own um, desire to have an impact, you have to decide, do I want to build a business that sticks really close to in, end users and, and individuals? Or do I want to build a business where I can be a corporate and know that overall the organization's doing great things, um, but I'm maybe not feeling it and seeing it? And we as entrepreneurs really wanted to be close to people, to individuals, and, and that's why we wanted a consumer angle to our, our company. Um, and so to answer your in, in, initial question, we were more hooked on this space that people were so emotional about their careers 
that they were saying things like, I hate my job and I don't know what I'm doing and I hate job search, that we felt that we needed to go find something to go solve in that space. Um, and then we found a little bit more understanding of what a product might fit in that market, um, which is how we ended up with Otter. But that actually didn't come for another six or so months. Like the main thing that got me to quit was I just loved this problem space. Like this was something that I want to go solve that I don't mind spending you know years on. Um, but equally, there was also an element of your first business is always hard. Um, and if you find a mission that you love, like go run at it because it's not often you get that excited by by something to take the risk and not take a salary and, and, and go off um, on, on your own for a little while. It's a weird one because I suppose when I think about exciting tech businesses to build, it's the one of the last spaces I would turn to psychologically. And I'm not trying to say it to be provocative or a dickhead or insulting, but you know what I mean, right? Because essentially recruitment does just have a bad rep. And whilst I 100% understand and relate to that sense of euphoria you feel when you actually help someone find and land a dream role, and that is a super meaningful thing to do, and I've done it, so I know exactly what you're describing, somewhere along the line, like the operational side of doing that at scale has lost a lot of heart. And um, I appreciate you're obviously going to point out these are all the things to fix and why you're going to do it. But it's a surprising place for three people to feel passionate about inside a business like Nested to suddenly get excited about building the differentiator here. And I'm wondering, like, if out of the three of you, you had to do a lot of convincing of each other that this was the right problem to solve. It's usually, you know, you speak to co-founders, it's usually one convincing the other and then coming with the data, etc. Three is a whole other question. So I want to know a little bit more about that dynamic. Who was doing the, who was doing the selling? You know, I don't remember it needing to be one person convincing the others. Um, so it's interesting you point that out as something different because I think it felt quite natural to us. We had to get convinced about the solution uh, and we debated like which is the right solution to go on. But in the problem space, I think the thing that really, really absorbed us was, as you rightly said, Dan, like the incumbents were not moving in the space. The fact that Indeed is one of the best businesses in the space, but really at the time felt like a newspaper that was brought online, um, really got us excited from that element of okay, the incumbents aren't great. We know we can make an impact. But then if you add it on this third layer, which is this is just a really interesting problem. Um, You're having to help people who can't just be given the same blanket advice. We'd seen that from our career coaching. And also it's incredibly emotional. And so it sort of ticked all these boxes of, well, we can build a consumer business that's incredibly psychologically driven. That's You have to understand how people tick. It's going to be hard to grow. It's a marketplace. I think we were excited by the challenge, you know, to your point about, oh, you know, there's three people. Why did you fall into the space, which is incredibly mucky and, and, and hard? Um, I think that's probably the element that we liked, um, that we didn't, that didn't put us off. What were the initial reactions from angel investors? Was it super positive? Was it super cautious? Was it just questioning why you even need investment? So actually one of the areas, obviously, and I totally appreciate the model of Otter and perhaps you should actually explain how it's different to uh, other recruiters in general because it'd be useful for listeners. Um, But one of the areas that makes it a super attractive business to run in general is in theory 
um, low overheads and high commissions and happy customers, right? And so there's it's one of the few spaces you don't necessarily need loads of investment if you run it that way. So what was your proposition? How were you getting this around investors' heads? Yeah, and I'll answer your second question, then I'll just say what the angel investors um, told us, because that's a, another interesting story. So we're not a recruiter. Like, we don't charge on a commission basis. I don't call you up and say, hey, Dan, I've got a role for you. We are a tech platform. We wanted to build a technology company. We wanted to build a platform that could scale to the whole world. And so what we're trying to do is replace the likes of LinkedIn Jobs or Indeed as your go-to job search platform with something that's even better. What we've done is build a proposition that's built around better selection, better matching, better information. And so what we've done is we've pulled only the best companies in the technology sphere, and you don't find the noise that you'll have on LinkedIn. You won't see a job for a product manager at a company that shouldn't need product managers. With matching, we spend a lot of time researching how people actually make decisions when it comes to looking for jobs. We don't show you a list of jobs. We show you a job one by one. It looks a little bit more like a, a TikTok experience. And then finally on information, we've taken the web and, and pulled all the information that you need, but then we've added user-generated content. And then we also write a little bit of editorial. Um, and so what we do is we say, you know, what's Otter's view of the company? And so that's sort of the pitch. Um, and, and we position it as our umbrella of being candidate first. You know, when we when we started this business, we really saw that the opportunity was to build for job seekers. If you have the best people on your platform, the companies have to follow. And it felt like at the time that was a bit of a unique insight because so many entrepreneurs had been building for companies. Fill a vacancy. Here's some better software for your interviewing. Here's some better software to manage your candidates. Here's something that's going to help you send quicker rejection emails. Like nothing really felt like it was for the job seekers. And so when to your, your first question about what did angel investors say, you know, angel investors invested in us. We had plenty who wanted to invest. Um, and it was quite interesting because after they invested, a lot of them said, we invested more in you guys than, than this product. And it was only when Otto launched and we took off and we grew very fast um, COVID helped us. Um, you know, we got coverage from the BBC. We were going around in so many circles of people being laid off. Then did I think, okay, Angel Investors actually got that this is a product that could work because I don't think anyone really believed that someone could build a product as good as LinkedIn or better than LinkedIn. Um, people have felt that like that side of recruitment was done. Um, and then we proved them wrong. Um, and, and we proved that actually people will come and use us. Um, and then we made money quite quickly in commercializing and so on. Let's get a bit technical. Um, obviously, one of the things that uh, listeners will hope that you are a fund of knowledge about is hiring and people and maybe even mental models around hiring great people. So what are the key things that you think founders and hiring managers in general should do to nail the hiring process? Gosh, there's lots here. So the first one is keep the candidate in mind. I would obviously say this as a company running a business that's trying to build a product that's really there for job seekers. Um, the reason I say this is, and it might sound a teeny bit condescending, but you look at a lot of hiring processes and the candidate is not first and foremost on the mind of the companies. They're, they're, they're building processes which take 10 rounds to offer someone a job and they're asking people to do two-day take-home tasks and the job descriptions are bland and they're not giving the salary ranges and all of these things add up to showing that the company is not really thinking about the job seeker. So that's the first one, you know, keep the candidate in mind. Um, 
The second one is, and this is getting a teeny bit more technical, which is choose your bar for what level of candidate experience you're going to give. And the reason why I say that is once you've defined your bar internally, you can then debate about how you can reach that bar and what needs to be above the bar and below the bar. So for example, if you want to respond to every single job seeker who ever applies to your job with feedback, that's a very high bar and you need to build processes around making that happen. Um, And not many companies choose that bar. So for example, at Otter, we've chosen a bar which is anyone who we phone interview, therefore spend a, a decent and reasonable amount of time with, we will give written feedback to. How do you build processes around that? You know, there's other things to think about in terms of how quickly you turn around your responses, um, how many hours you spend interviewing someone, um, what types of interviews you give them. Like, Decide your bar and then you can move from there. I think too often I speak to companies who've not decided, like, how good do they want to be? They keep saying, like, we want to be better, but you, know, you need to make a decision on, do you want to be the best company ever or do you want to be within the best and amongst the pack? Just, just, just to the second point, I mean, you need a PhD level of self-awareness to try and pretend you're not trying to build the best. I mean, it's, it is really impressive to meet people who are just super honest about that, but you don't meet them enough. Um, so anyway, so I've interrupted your flow, but I mean, that is uh, unlikely, I would say. What's your experience of that? Just to challenge you, Dan, I think the best entrepreneurs are those that understand that processes and mechanics are what really makes a business once you get to a certain level of scale. And it's, uh, it requires a level of self-awareness for sure, but it also requires a level of you know systems to say, I can't build a business that can reach that bar. Like it's just too hard. I can't afford to hire that many recruiters. I can't have my hiring managers spend that much time on hiring. And so I think probably what normally happens is companies try to be the best and then they fail and they go, oh, okay, that's why we can't offer that level of experience. But I much prefer the businesses that do have that self-awareness that say, okay, we are going to aim to be the top you know, 20 percentile. This is what those kind of companies are doing. We're going to make a commitment to put salary ranges on our job adverts. We're going to commit to doing this and this. Um, that's what we care about. We know we can't do better because we can't afford to, and it's not quite right for our business. It does happen. You know, I've spoken to some entrepreneurs that think that way, um, but not everyone. That's why I always like to recommend it whenever I speak on, on how to do hiring really well. And to get back in the flow, I think the third thing And this is probably my last most interesting point is um, interviewing is an art and a science. Um, It's hard to teach, but it does come through great, great training. Um, And so ask yourself, how do I build the muscle in my organization to be great at hiring? And really that comes normally from um, being great at assessing people. And so do the best you can to do shadow interviews, practice interviews, Keep people honest, see what people are doing well in their interviews and give them good feedback because your interviewers will not be perfect. Really understand how much you're thinking about will versus skill. Think about, are you being fair when you're interviewing people? Do you have a a rubric? Do you have a consistent scoring sheet? Or do you ask random questions to different people? Like these are all things that um, really do count when you're trying to hire at scale. because it might work for your first 10 employees, but when you're hiring for your 75th and you know, you're hiring multiple people a week, you need systems um, and you need people to have the muscle. And you need to make sure that people across the business have a similar response to whether someone's got the will and skill to fit into your company. You know, I think it's really interesting. Like when we were hiring a lot at Heights and, you know, we've sadly had to let a lot of people go recently because of everything um but to describe the reasons and obviously realizing that a lot of businesses going through very similar scenarios 
When we were doing lots of hiring, I took great pride in a couple of things. Number one, we took it super seriously. My co-founder and I basically decided from the beginning of the company, we are going to be learning how to do hiring extremely well, values-led hiring. So we became super curious. Like I honestly can say we upskilled ourselves exponentially between one business to the next in how do great companies hire great people who are values-led so that we're not just hiring for skill but will and all of the other things in between. And one of the things I found really interesting was we went through like ebbs and flows of hiring, right? So uh, one of the things I found super interesting is like, you know, I went through like a period of just I was on interviews all day long and, and then... We went through a period of not hiring anyone and then had to hire people again. And I was amazed myself, like as someone who takes quite quite a lot of pride in thinking that I remember how to do things well, I felt like a beginner again, just taking a few months off. Suddenly, I was really panicked to realize that, um, you know, you mentioned a muscle, which is why I'm sharing this anecdote. I was really surprised to see how quickly I'd lost that muscle memory. I was, like I say, astounded by my own incompetence and having to go back to beginner mindset and learning again. And I, you know, really had to retrain myself. And I'll never forget that experience because next time I'm hiring someone, I now know and remember that I don't know what I'm doing. And just because I've done it really well in the past doesn't mean I know what I'm doing. So unless you're consistently doing it, which is usually the job of either a super high growth company or literally a hiring manager at a big organization it's worth taking the moment of humility to realize you're probably going to suck at it unless you keep retraining yourself. And that was certainly my experience. Absolutely. I love that insight. And I think the one I'd throw back is it's the same for a job seeker. You know, you you don't look for jobs all the time and people often completely forget what it's like to to interview well. I always found it interesting when I I would ask people when researching Otter, um, how good at interviewing do you think you are out of 10? And most people would say eight, nine or 10. Um, And there just can't be, there can't be that many good interviewers um, because as you say, it is a muscle that you build and you lose that muscle memory. Um, And so I, I always try and remind myself of what you've just said, which is I take time to ramp up. But then also when I'm interviewing people, I always try and get a sense of, are they new to this? Like, have they been interviewing much in their recent period? Or is this one of the first? Because if it's their first you know maybe they knew they do need a bit of a benefit of the doubt because um it's a skill like interviewing is a skill and it's actually not too dissimilar to fundraising right they always say if you're going for a big fundraising round you go to the people you want the money from the least first because it's going to take practice and they're going to uh, they're going to pick apart all the things you're doing wrong and you'd rather learn what you're doing wrong very quickly get that feedback quickly iterate and make sure you're doing a lot better in the next pitch i guess it's really the same when you're doing the interview process okay what are the biggest mistakes you see companies making i guess one of them is obviously going to be um the hubris and assumption that you're incredibly good at interviewing and making all the wrong mistakes but what are other ones one big mistake is starting off with a job description, in which case they don't see it as a sales pitch. They see it as too much about them. So that comes back to my advice of, you know, think about the candidate in mind. Um, Having a job description, which is enticing, which encourages them to think about why they might fit in here, what they'll achieve, um, is much more exciting than writing 15 bullet points about you must have this and you must have that. And so companies are not making hard decisions like, let's find a way to get job adverts with salaries. It might create a little bit of politics internally, but it makes a big difference. And we see the difference because you get way more applications if that's the case. Um, 
And that's not only the hard decision you can make. You know, there are other decisions such as what is your remote working policy? What is your maternity and paternity policy? Um, how much uh, structure do you have in your organization? Are there too many levels of managers? Like these are all the things that job, job seekers who are the top class think about. Um, and I think it takes a while for a company to realize that those types of things are hindering their ability to attract talent. Um, often earlier stage businesses that haven't had to hire much will spend a few months thinking, why are we not getting any traction? And then you sort of have to ease them in to say, well, the, that's because there are amazing businesses in London and the UK and also Europe now hiring in the UK that are doing things way better than you are. It's competitive out there, the market for engineers particularly. Um, what could you be doing differently and how could you be best addressing and selling your employer brand differently? Um, those are the two that really come to mind. Um, there are lots of other ones we hear from candidates. I think the third, the third area of concern from job seekers is that companies are not actually doing what they say in terms of their values, in terms of their commitment to things like diversity. And then when you join a company, there's lots of red flags. And that's been a problem for, for years. That's why Glassdoor started um, many years ago to, to help people see under the curtain and understand really what a company is like. Um, and whether that's a mistake or whether that's just poor management, but you know, we, we unfortunately hear from job seekers too many times where they say, hey, the interview process was amazing. All of their external comms was great. And then I joined and it was terrible. It was chaotic. Um, there were bigots, there were racists and so on. And that's that's unexcusable. That's unexcusable. Like that's something that really shouldn't be happening, and I, I don't know why it still happens, especially when these businesses are often backed by amazing VCs. What are your top three tips for entrepreneurs that are looking to create great hiring processes? I think the first one um, is just think in terms of what would a candidate love to experience, um, and that sounds quite simple, but that will really elevate um, how much uh, joy you're giving throughout your process. The ideal outcome is that someone you reject is telling a friend, hey, I loved that interview experience. You should apply there. Um, the second one is build for speed. Um, the number of candidates that we've won, uh, we've hired at Otter because we've moved fast. Um, I, I've lost count of now because other companies they were applying to were too slow. Um, and so you need to design for that, whether it's short number of interviews, whether it's really quick feedback processes, whether it's um, only having a few interviewers, these are things that really matter. There's a reason why the best chief people officers are and the chief talent officers are really focused on time to hire because that is a metric that job seekers really care about. And then the third is, um, and I thought this one would be slightly different, take risks. I remember hearing a number of years ago, if you hire 100 people and all of them work out, you're not taking enough risks because um, you really should be finding a few people who maybe don't work out because that shows that you're keeping a bar of maybe finding those outside or different people from different backgrounds with different opportunities that they've had who might be your shining stars one day and might be your shining stars as soon as they join. And so take a risk, but, but be calculated, understand when it's a role to take a risk, when it's a role not to take a risk. Okay, and my top three recommendations to other entrepreneurs that want to create great processes. Um, start with the onboarding in mind. So one thing I'm really proud of at Heights, ever since we've hired our first person, which blew their mind, uh, we had a full onboarding experience ready. So the first three months was already mapped out and really clear from day one what was going to be happening, who was going to be dealing with what, etc. Number two, like having a really clear process around your values and how you're hiring around those values. 
I think that one's slightly trickier on the basis of obviously values take a little while to figure out and understand. And then also making sure that the behaviours that, uh, you know, animate those values and bring them to life can be demonstrated throughout the process. But trying to make sure that it's clear that you're not trying to use them to trick trip anyone up. So trying to make sure that you're explaining this is our company, these are our values, and these are therefore our questions that demonstrate those values and this is why they exist rather than doing it as like a Jedi mind trick to see if people don't demonstrate them. You know, just being very transparent about it through the whole process, I feel like labelling these things and making them clear actually, in our experience, made people a lot more comfortable about it. And frankly, you can still de- you can still quite clearly see whether people are listing those values or not. And then the third is having a very clear scorecard. So like you said earlier, making sure that people are not randomising their questions so that bias doesn't doesn't creep in as well so as much as you can take bias out of the process i do feel like scorecards is a super clear way of doing that making sure the questions are really consistent no matter who the hiring manager is the scoring process is really clear and therefore the training of how to do that is super clear to everyone as well so you get very consistent results what do you think how do how did i do i like them um i think probably one more i'd add is um this would be my fourth really help candidates along during the journey. I think sometimes people interview and think it's us v them and like we we can't give them advice, we can't give them tips. Um, but actually, if you give them advice, whether it's a blog that they should read or, you know, here's how we think about our values to what you said. Here's some questions we might ask. Here's some feedback from the last round. Wow, it makes a huge difference in terms of how motivated they are to to work on your process because they're probably interviewing elsewhere. Um, and sometimes those are the details that make sure they perform well and the details that mean that they want to come join your company. Um, we we like to do that also when we've got the the the, the resource to do it, um, which isn't always. Sometimes you, you you're just hiring too many people, um, but when when we're only hiring for a few roles, we really like to, to hold people's hands because that's also how you hire um, uh, underrepresented people who might not have had the experience um, and they actually have an amazing set of experiences they can bring to bear. Sam, thank you so much for your time on Secret Leaders. What is your one piece of advice for people that want to go and disrupt maybe potentially a bit of a stuffy industry that doesn't have too much love, um, but want to create something new and dynamic and exciting in it? Think about brand, um, not just about product. I think something that I've seen a number of disruptors try and do in recruitment, because that's obviously the space I spend more time um, seeing, is that they've got amazing product, but they don't have a brand. And I think when you're trying to disrupt a messy space, a space that's had status quo um, products for a long time and views about the ways of doing things, you've got to have a voice and you've got to shout loudly uh, with that voice. Um, And so brand isn't just the colors of your product. It's not just what it looks like. It's a lot more than that. Your tone of voice, your visual identity, your strategy, your positioning. Um, We spend a lot of time thinking about that at Otter in early stages. And I think it's paid dividends for us. And I'd always recommend people who are really trying to disrupt an established market to do the same. Sam Franklin, Otter co-founder and CEO. Loads of great advice there. If you're looking to hire and want to attract the best talent, think about what a candidate would love to experience. Move quickly to snap up those applicants. Take risks. And of course, subscribe to Secret Leaders to learn from the most successful founders in the world. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. 
Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan murray Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. See you next time.